0: Father, thank you. Um, thank you again for today, um, for this time, this place that you allow us to gather together to worship you. Lord, I desire nothing, nothing greater this morning than for you to be glorified. Father, I ask that you would glorify yourself today. You would do it in us, that you would do it through us, that you would glorify yourself as your word is, is proclaimed. Lord, I, I desire to faithfully proclaim your word, but yet I know I am incapable of doing that apart from your ever constant grace and mercy. And so ultimately, I, I ask you, Lord, that you, you would do that work um, in me and that you would do that work through me. Not only, Father, do I desire to see you glorified, I desire to see your children edified, which glorifies you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself as you edify this this church. Lord, again, I love you and I praise you and I thank you for this, this precious time that you've given us. Be glorified in it. Amen. God is sovereign, isn't he? And he is sovereign. We often proclaim the fact that God is sovereign, and I think we do that sometimes, and, and, and we forget, maybe, or don't even fully understand what it means to say that God is, is sovereign. So briefly this morning, as I begin, and before we, before we dive into to Ruth, I want to just remind us, I hope it's a reminder, but I want to remind us by, uh, what it means when we say that God is sovereign. To say God is sovereign means that God is in complete control of all things and in this case all means all so when we say God is in control of all things he is in control of all things there is nothing nothing that God is not in complete control of let's look at Isaiah 14 Isaiah 14, verse 24, verse 27, concerning God's judgment on Assyria, says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. And then in verse 27, it says, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? I know this text is regarding Assyria, but it's regarding us as well. That God is sovereign. The sovereign God over Assyria is the sovereign God over the United States of America. He's the sovereign God over the entire world. My life, your life. Now as the sovereign one, God does as he pleases. It's his divine right as God, as a sovereign, to do as he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. We see it proclaimed again in Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Verse 10. It says. Actually, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 says, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Not only does God, as the sovereign one, do as he pleases, concerning his, what we often, I think, wrap into the envelope of of his will, we understand that God, one, he causes, right? That he actively causes things to happen. Again, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord of God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and what? Creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So concerning God's sovereignty, He actively at times causes things to come to pass. Not only does God cause things to come to pass, right? But God also allows things. This is more passively, okay? So a lot of times we think of this in relation to God's will, right? Was this part of God's will, right? Well, did God cause this? Did God allow this? Okay, this is what we're addressing here. So at times God passively allows things to happen. We have a great example of this in Genesis chapter 50. As we're turning there, recall Genesis chapter 50, right? We're, we're nearing the end of what? Joseph's life. Jacob had just died. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says, and this is, um, this is Joseph speaking here, and he's addressing his brothers, and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So all these bad things that happened in joseph's life right this evil this is sin that was perpetrated against him against ultimately god what does joseph say what does he say to his brothers right he says what you meant for evil right this was your sin all right joseph says god passively right he allowed it to happen and he allowed it to happen according to his will for his glory for the good of israel right So God at times actively causes, at times God passively allows, right? Now he does not cause evil, nor is he responsible for it. Let's go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. No one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God, God doesn't cause evil, right? God does not cause sin. He's not the author of sin. He's not responsible for sin, right? We are. Satan's not responsible for sin. He's not responsible for your sin he wasn't responsible for Eve's sin he's not responsible for my sin right you are I am she was we are right however what does God do God uses sin and this in part is what Joseph proclaimed in Genesis 50:20 that God uses sin sinlessly according to his sovereign perfect holy will Romans 8, 28 says what? And we know this, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who, what? For those who love Him. So there's a, a distinctive there. For those who love Him right? and are called according to His purposes. Now, if these things we're talking about here concerning God and His sovereignty and His sovereign will... If these things aren't so, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not what? Then God is not God. So what does this have to do with Ruth? As we continue, right? We, we began Ruth last month, okay? going to continue, Lord willing, right? As we continue Ruth we are going to see the sovereignty of God at work in Naomi's life, at work in Ruth's life, and Boaz's life, okay, to accomplish his purposes, which are for his glory, which are for their good, which are ultimately as well for our good. His sovereignty so permeates the book of Ruth that it's important That We stop and remind ourselves or be reminded what it means when we say God is sovereign. And today as we look at Ruth chapter 1 verses 6 through verse 22, I want you to understand and I want you to know that this sovereign God, right, who is actively or who actively worked, right, in Naomi's life, who actively worked in Ruth's life, Right? who through his sovereignty intimately and personally cared for them and that he did what he did for his glory and he did what he did for their good. I want you to know that this sovereign God, our sovereign God, cares for us as he cared for them. And he's working in your life as intimately as he was working in their lives, right? To glorify himself, but also to sanctify them. Turn with me now to Ruth chapter one. I'm gonna actually just read the entire first chapter of Ruth. And we began it last month, verses one through five. We're going to continue today, verse 6 through 22, which will bring us to the end of chapter 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his sons were Mahlon and Chilon, Chilion, Kilion, they were Ephraites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then Malon and Kilion also died. The woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, but we must surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? That may be your husband's. Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore remain for marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The first point that we're going to consider this morning, Ruth, we're going to look at is the sovereignty of God through provision. Chapter 6 and 7, it says, Then she, Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Moab God had provided initially had provided in Moab for Naomi right for Elimelech for her two sons we looked at that last month right there was a famine in Judah okay unable to provide for themselves right Naomi and her husband and her two sons right they sojourned from Judah up around over to Moab, right, where there was where there was food, right, so in that we see, and we looked at that last time god 's provision right in Moab for this family provided food, he provided shelter, they were in Moab, I think we said last time for at least what ten ten plus years, right, so clearly that they, they, he provided for them uh, a livelihood, a means to survive, to sustain their way of life, right? Not only did he provide physically for them in that sense, right? But he also provided for their sons, right? melon and Kilion. He provided what? He provided wives, right? He provided Orpah. He provided Ruth. Not only did he provide wives for the sons, but he provided daughters-in-law for Naomi. One, right? Namely Ruth, right? Who would be instrumental in Naomi's ultimately redemption from her destitution that she experienced after the loss of her husband, after the loss of her sons. And of course, as we progress through Ruth, we'll, we'll see um, Ruth's, <laughs> um, or we'll see the importance, if you will, of Ruth's relationship with Naomi in regards to this, to this redemption. Now, verses 8 and verse 9 it says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, she said, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Understand that these, these women, all right, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi, they, they love each other dearly their relationship is close. But yet, Naomi, despite their love for one another, despite this this bond that they have with one another, Naomi pleads with them to leave and to go back to their parents' home. Last week, we talked about sorrow. Last week, last month, right? We talked about sorrow in Moab, right? The sorrow from the loss that Naomi experienced, the sorrow from the loss... that that Ruth and Orpah experienced, right? Of course, the bulk of that sorrow centered around the fact that they lost their husbands. We also need to understand that in this time, in this place, in this culture, right, women without a husband, they were lost, destitute. They had nothing the husbands for these women were their sole means of provision right in our society today it's no big deal right I mean I mean not losing a husband i mean that is a big deal, right, but from a provision standpoint, right overall, it's not as big of a deal, I should say, right Many women work outside the home right there's employment opportunities right there's life insurance, okay. And so the loss from a provision standpoint that these women experienced compounded that sorrow that they had from the loss of their, their mates, their their husbands, Naomi's sons. And so Naomi, knowing of this, okay, she pleads with her daughters in law to go to your mother's house. Why? That you might find new husbands that they might provide for you. Naomi then blesses them. She asks for God to show them kindness through the provision of a husband. See, there's, there's one thing that Naomi forgets. And I think it's something that we often forget as we plan for provision. That's what Naomi was doing. She was trying to plan for provision for her daughters-in-law, go home, get married, that you might have a husband who may take care of you. Right? She was planning for their provision. Right? But what Naomi, what Naomi forgot. Right? Yet Ruth, I don't believe at all, did based on her latter response to Naomi. But what Naomi failed to acknowledge was that God could provide for those women. Naomi and her daughter-in-laws better than any husband could ever provide for them. She's making plans. It's not bad to make plans. It's not bad for us to make plans, right? Because we do make plans, and it's a part of responsible stewardship, right? For us to make plans, to desire for many to be married, to be married. And we must never forget that God... God can take care of us better than anyone else can take care of us. God can provide for my needs better than I can provide for my needs. God can provide for my family's needs better than I can ever provide for my family's needs. God is a better father to my children, can be a better father to my children than I can ever be to my children. In verse 10, we see the response of the daughters-in-law. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you and to your people. Of course, this response demonstrates their love, their dedication to Naomi. Yet in verses 11 through 13, Naomi continues her plea as well as her thinking regarding God's sovereignty and his provisions. So in verse 11... Naomi said, return my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth, against me now naomi in part is referring to the leverite custom of a brother marrying his brother's widow to carry on his brother's name we see that in deuteronomy chapter 25 deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and she uh, shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. The Leverite custom. This is what Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi is referring to in verses 11 through 13. She says, listen, I don't have any more sons. They can be your husband's. I'm not even married myself. But if I were married and I could give birth tonight, you're gonna wait till those boys are old enough to marry you? She says, No. Again, the only option, not that God has maybe other plans or another option for them, right? But Naomi's thinking is the only option is you have to go back home. You have to go back home to your, your mother's house, right? Where you can find a husband who can provide for you, who will take care of you. In verse 13b, we see Naomi is just completely wrapped up in this self-pity, I believe, for herself. Again, she says in 13b, Know my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. We'll address Naomi's view of herself. We'll address what Naomi thinks God is doing in her life, with her life, uh, in, our, in our third point today. But we do see here just this, this um, self-pity that she has for herself, that God has done this to her. God is afflicting her. God is punishing her. I think part of Naomi's problem, if you will, and part of the problem with Naomi telling her daughter's in-law to go back home to your mom's house, find a new husband, get married there, is that in part, Naomi sees God's provision, God's providence, as merely abundance. God is providential. God is providing through the abundance. I think she has a misunderstanding of the relationship between providence and provision. Providence means divine care. However, the problem is we, I think like Naomi, often see this divine care, this providence as an abundance of provision, right? We often proclaim what God has given. I mean, look at, look at what God has given us, right? He's given us so much and he has, I mean, this is true, right? I mean, he has given us more than we deserve. And in that he is providential and how he has abundantly provided for us. So let's praise him. And that's a right response, That is an absolutely merited response. But how many times when we find ourselves, when you have found yourself, when I have found myself in in this place of profound need, right? this place of loss, how many times have we found ourselves in those places and said, God is so providential in what we have right now? or in what we don't have as far as an abundance of provisions, right? God is so providential in the loss. God is so providential in the need. So let's praise him for where we're at. Let's praise him for our loss. Let's praise him in his providence for what we don't have. I've never said that. I haven't heard many people say that. Why? Again, us often like Naomi, right? We equate God's providence. We equate his provision with what we have, the stuff, the abundance of stuff, the blessings, right? So we think we're blessed when we have, but how often do we stop and say, hey, we're blessed when we we don't have. What about God's providence? And what about God's provision in that loss? In that need? In what we're not given? God provided a drought in Judah. Elimelech, Naomi, their sons were at loss in Judah. And through this loss and I imagine it wasn't like oh they woke up one day and had plenty of stuff in Judah and all of a sudden they were like you know we had plenty all of a sudden it's gone let's just go to let's just go to Moab and so the day they lost everything in Judah the day the drought hit in Judah they went and went to Moab and really there was there really wasn't a break between not having in Judah and having in Moab they pretty much just had all along right I, I suspect and the reason I suspect this is this is what we see in our society, right? Is, is we, we hit economic times are hard, right? We have a drought. We've had a drought this summer. People have experienced loss and crops and pasture and all this, right? And so we go through this period of not having, right? And at some point, that ends. God gives us rain. The grass is turning green at my house, right? But there's this, There's this period in between that of loss. There's this period of not having. And that period of loss and that period of not having is a part of God's sovereign providence for our lives. This drought that we had here this summer, the drought that we had last summer, the livestock that at least some of us have lost, right? That loss is a part of God's care for us. His providence, right? Could have caused it to happen or he could be allowing it to happen, right? God for Naomi and Orpah and Ruth provided, I know this sounds contrary to how we normally think, Okay, and, and I've been struggling with it this week. But God provided for the loss of a husband for Naomi. He provided for the loss of sons for Naomi. He provided for the loss of husbands for Naomi and Ruth. The thing is, as we go through this story, okay, we are going to see how crucial it is, how integral, how important it was for the, the completion of this story for all three of those men to die. We know, and I'm going to just jump ahead real quick, but not get too much into it, right? And I don't, don't want to spoil the story, right? But we know that ultimately, right, God uses Ruth... To be what? The great-great-grandmother of King David, right? Who was what? In the lineage of Christ, okay? This is huge that God uses this Moabitess woman. And remember we talked last time that the Moabites and, and the Israelites were like arch enemies, right? This horrible pagan people that were way worse and way pagan than the Israelites, right? That God uses this, this, this woman from this horrible pagan nation and he inserts her into the lineage of Christ, Right this is this is huge. God uses her in his redemptive plan in sending the Messiah. but if God wouldn't have provided for the loss of elimelech, Ruth would have uh, Ruth Naomi would have never had any need to go back to Judah. Why? because she has a husband in Moab. things are still good in Moab. they were established in Moab. Why go back to Judah? We're being taken care of here in Moab, right? If Ruth would have never left, never lost her husband, if God would have never provided for the loss of her husband, right, she would have never had any need to go back to Israel as well, let alone go back to Israel and be married to a man who would give them a son that they would call Obed, who would have a son called Jesse, who would have a son called David, as in King David. Well, let's assume Elimelech died and... Malon, Ruth's husband died, but Kilion didn't, then again, there really well there very well could not, would not have been a need for those two women to what? To go back to Judah. Because they would have had a man there and Moab, their family, taking care of them. So God God provided again this is so contrary to how, how we think, right? It doesn't make the, the, the loss any less hurtful and painful for those women, right? And did they even see the big picture of it all in their lives? They didn't. Ruth didn't know that their son Obed was going to have a son Jesse. I mean, she might have, you know, been a grandma for a short time, I don't know, but she I I doubt she was a great grandma. I doubt she ever, you know, saw King David. She never saw him as king, maybe as a little baby. I I don't know. But did she see the big picture? No, she didn't see the big picture. Okay? But God God provided for this loss, for this for this big picture so God's providence okay his providence for them his providence for us doesn't just include abundance right but also at times it includes lack includes need it includes loss right look at job job and naomi um job and naomi are in part in similar circumstances right both both going through the thick of it right both experiencing great loss both experiencing great pain from this loss naomi in her self-pity says god is basically punishing me right in Job, we'll look at Job chapter 1. Verses 20 through 22, but this is just after Job has lost all of his possessions, right? Has lost all of his children. And in verses 20 22, it says, Then Job arose. Tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground. He was completely undone. Experienced the same level of pain, sorrow that Naomi was experiencing. Right? But his response was this and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord providentially gave. He cared for me. And the Lord has providentially in his care, what has taken. And he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Very similar circumstances as as Naomi completely different response and i think that response in part is due to job's understanding of god's providence that god is providential when we have and god is providential when we have not and naomi's will say misunderstanding or lack of understanding of god's providence The second point that we're looking at today is found in verses 14 and 18, 14 through 18 of Ruth chapter 1. And it's the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, I know Randy addressed this on Wednesday, right? A little bit differently how we're going to be addressing God's sovereignty in regards to salvation this morning. So let's go back to Ruth in verses 14 through 18. They lifted up their voices they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. The evidence, part of the evidence anyway, of Ruth's salvation is seen in her commitment to her mother-in-law. You understand that Ruth is giving up everything, right, to go with Naomi. Again, at this point, doesn't see the big picture, doesn't see how God's going to provide for her in Israel, right? But here you have this Moabitess woman, right? You have a Moabite, one who was forbidden to enter the camp of Israel, right? Who now has lost everything. No man, no husband to take care of her, right? Traveling into a foreign land, a land of her, historic anyway, enemies, So, for Naomi, or sorry, so for Ruth to say, Naomi, I'm going to go with you to Israel. Ruth, in her mind, is willing to give up everything because I'm going to go there. And as a Moabitess, regardless of how I feel about God, I'm not going to find a husband. No Israelite man is going to marry a Moabite woman. Are you kidding me? Moabites are their enemies. And Naomi, she's old. What man's going to marry an old woman? An old woman's probably not going to be able to give him any sons to carry on the family name. But I'm going to go with her. And I'm going to go with her into poverty. And I'm going to go with her into destitution. I could stay in Moab, find me a good man with a good job, build me a nice mud hut, whatever they lived in, right? Have a good life. I could do that. I'm going to give it all up. And if going with Naomi means my death through poverty, starvation, then so be it. It's the right thing to do. So Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going with you, Naomi. And your people... Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to join in them with their covenant to Yahweh. And Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is my God. This is Ruth's proclamation of faith here. When she says, Your people will be my people. And your God, your God will be my God. So we see the evidence of Ruth's faith, right? And her deep devotion and commitment to her mother-in-law. I mean, again, this isn't just like, oh, yeah, you're going to Asher? Yeah, I'll go to Asher with you. We can go there. I can still drive to Ada, have a good job. Everything's normal, right? Yeah, I can I can live in Asher, right? No, this would be like, wow, you are moving. You're moving to Siberia Some." some far-off place completely different than where we're at now, some place where we know we have no way to survive, right? You're going there, and I'm probably going to die if I go there because I won't be able to take care of myself. Y'all go. So we see evidence of Ruth's faith and her devotion to her mother-in-law, right? But then she makes this proclamation of faith when she says, your people will be my people, and your God... Your God will be my God. Now, I want to talk about the road to Ruth's salvation and the sovereignty of God in regards to the road to Ruth's salvation. Again, so when I say the sovereignty of God and salvation, we're not going to talk about election, predestination. I'm not, I'm not talking about that this morning, okay? But here's the thing. God allowed a drought to happen in Judah. So this family, Elimelech, Naomi, her sons. So this family would essentially take the gospel, right? The Old Testament gospel, right? The veiled gospel. How about that? Does that work? Would take the veiled gospel to Moab. And in Moab, one of these sons would take a wife. That wife's name would be Ruth. And this believing, faithful family... I don't know where Ruth's conversion fits into that, nonetheless. This believing, faithful family taking this, this gospel, the gospel, to Moab would proselytize, would evangelize this Moabitess Ruth. And if I had to guess, right, this is one of those questions, I'm saving for heaven, folks. I know I've talked about those questions for heaven, that, that if we're allowed to ask questions in heaven, which I'm sure we will to like other, other saints and believers, right? Was it How instrumental was Naomi in, in Ruth's conversion? Right? I think it was huge, right? I think, I think the mother-in-law played, I think Naomi played an instrumental part in, in Ruth's faith as far as Naomi proselytizing her, right, evangelizing her. And I think part of that is evidenced by Ruth's undying devotion to Naomi. So God sends this family with this great news to Moab. This family takes this, this, this Moabitess girl as a wife, as a daughter-in-law, and she is saved in part, by the means of this family going to Moab. I think of Romans 10, um, 14 when I'm thinking about this. Um, Let's just look at that briefly. Romans 10, verses um, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things, right? I'm thinking about Naomi, okay? How beautiful are the feet of Naomi who brought what? Good news of good things to Moab, that God, through that, might what? Might save Ruth. See, it was no coincidence, okay, that this family, I don't know what their last name was, but this family, right, went to Moab, right? There's no coincidence, actually, that it was a drought that caused them to go to Moab. And then at the time, there was plenty in Moab, right? No coincidence that this family, this this young man, Maedlon, would meet this this girl, Ruth, and take her as a wife. And it was no coincidence that these three men would die. And after they die, hey, the drought in Judah's over. Come back to Bethlehem. Right. God was actively working in all of these events, causing them to happen, allowing them to happen in part specifically in part for Ruth's salvation. He was sovereignly working through these events to bring her salvation to pass. Just as God sovereignly worked right through these events, through these peoples, through these circumstances to bring Ruth's salvation to pass, if you are saved, he sovereignly, worked in your life just as he did in her life to bring your salvation to pass it wasn't coincidence that you just happened to move next to a family that had a girl your age that became your friend that came over and shared the gospel with you right if that's your story It wasn't coincidence that you heard the gospel proclaimed your entire life and that you wound up in a jail cell somewhere where all of a sudden, through those events, God saved you. God brought those things to pass. Maybe he didn't cause the sin that landed you in that cell, right? But he allowed it to happen he allowed it to happen for your salvation. He allowed you to move next to that neighbor or to have that coworker, or whatever your story is, whatever your testimony is. Okay. And I know some of us have these testimonies where it's like, I remember this happened and this happened and bam, 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 bam. And I remember that night that I cried out for mercy and I cried out for grace and repentance and faith in God's me right? And then there's other of us, others of us, right? They're like, well, I'm one of them. I mean, I think maybe when I was a little boy, I, I was saved because I remember I had a neighbor. This is me. I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. Right? I had this neighbor, Kane Collins, right? Great family. I still think of them all the time. And I remember when he came over and we were playing on the playground. And I mean, I went to church. Parents are believers, all that stuff, right? But I remember we were playing on the playground and he was talking about being saved. And he was telling me about, you know, what, what a person has to do to be saved and why a person needs to be saved, Right? And so I remember all that, and I remember going in and talking to my mom afterwards and saying, I want to be saved. I want to pray. I want to ask God to forgive me. I want to ask him to to, to be my Savior and my Lord, and I want to be saved. And I remember all that. I remember doing all that. And then I know there's times in my life now, though, I look back on that, and I'm like, well, you know, as I look at other periods in my life, I'm like, I don't know if that's when I was saved. I don't know if it was later. I'm, I'm not sure, okay? Doesn't matter. Nonetheless, God was working in all of this, through all of this, giving me that neighbor, giving me these parents, allowing these circumstances to happen, maybe causing these circumstances to happen, right? He was doing this for the express purpose of saving me. He did that for me. And if you are his, he did that for you, just as he did it for Ruth. He brought your salvation to pass through these events. That he specifically, that he intentionally, thoughtfully, caringly, right? Either allowed to happen or caused to happen. And in that, God is sovereign in salvation. Also, just briefly want to address, since we're talking about Ruth, who is a, um, an Old Testament saint, right? I want to address briefly salvation for the Old Testament saints. I know I have addressed this in the past. I know Randy has addressed this in the past. One, I love talking about it, so you're just going to get to hear about it again, right? But I think it's appropriate because we're talking about an Old Testament saint who, as we're going through Ruth, what? Demonstrates evidence of faith and then makes a proclamation of faith. So I think it's more than appropriate to briefly address salvation for the Old Testament saints. Now, I was often confused by this for the longest time, like how like people in the Old Testament were saved. Because he- here's what I knew. Let's go, to, let's go to Galatians. We'll start in Galatians. All right, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Well, first of all, that's all of us, right? Cursed Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, no person, aside from Christ, who wasn't just a person, right? Completely god Totally man, right? No person has ever abided by all things written in the law. It's as cursed as that person. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here's what I knew as I was confused about the salvation for the Old Testament saint, right? Law doesn't save anyone, right? Law can't save anyone, right? What, is, what does God's law do? Reveal sin, right? It's a mirror. It's a schoolmaster, right, that shows us our sin. We look at God's law, perfect and holy, right? Because he is perfect and holy. It's just a reflection of the lawgiver. But we look at that law and we say, wow, missed it there, missed it there. As a matter of fact, I'll just go through all, I can just go through the Ten Commandments and tell you I'm guilty of every single one, right? That's what the law does. The law reveals our sin. Can't save anyone because nobody can ever keep it. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. So, okay, the Old Testament saint couldn't have been saved by keeping the law because i know the law can't save the law just reveals sin so i'm at this point where i'm like oh, all right so then how was the old testament saint saved i know the sacrifices maybe well hebrews 10 one through four we'll stop at four we'll come back to that in a moment Hebrews 10 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, okay, law can't save anyone, hasn't saved anyone. Sacrifices don't save anyone. As a matter of fact, all the sacrifices do is just remind us of our sin. So Ruth or any Old Testament saint, right, couldn't have been saved by keeping the law. Couldn't have been saved by animal sacrifices, right? And Acts 4.12... In Acts 4.12, it says, <clears throat> And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So this was the place that where I was at. Maybe this is the place where you're at. Maybe you're still working it out. Okay, the law can't save. The law hasn't saved anyone, right? Old Testament sacrifices hasn't saved anyone, right? Hasn't, hasn't paid for any sins. All it's done is just reminded us, them, of, of sin. And it says here in Acts that Salvation is only in and through Jesus Christ. And, and here was, my, here was my, my problem. I'm like, okay, but, but Ruth, I mean, she was like a thousand plus years before Jesus Christ. I mean, they're doing this law thing. They're doing this sacrifice thing. Jesus is a thousand years away, right? They, 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 she didn't even know his name, right? And there was a promise of a Messiah, right? But the Messiah hadn't come. And since he hadn't come, he actually hadn't accomplished anything. So I'm like, I, I just don't get how these Old Testament saints were saved. Now, I remember when, when God, and it's only by God's grace and mercy that we, even as believers, understand anything in his word. And so I remember when God opened my eyes, opened my mind to the truth about how Old Testament saints were saved. So let's go to Romans. Romans. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, keeping the law, by works, right? Doing good, right? The law, good, following it. Um, He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin in the Lord will not take into account. We'll actually look at that here in just a few minutes. Um, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision to seal the righteousness of the faith which he had had while uncircumcised so that he he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to him. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham, Old Testament saint, wasn't saved by keeping the law. Because he knew what? Abraham knew he couldn't keep the law. Abraham knew that the law only made him guilty. He also knew sacrifices sacrifices were just a reminder of sin and he knew that sacrifice couldn't save him but he also knew something else about the sacrificial system right even though he kind of predates all of that there were still sacrifices right but here's what Abraham knew here's what the old testament saint understood about the sacrificial system One, it was a reminder of sin. Two, it was a picture. It was a living illustration for what was to come. And that was that God, through the death of His Messiah, which we see clearly in Isaiah, but that God, through the death of His Messiah, Messiah would provide the atonement for sin. And so Abraham and Ruth and Rahab, Naomi, King David, insert Old Testament saint name here. They what? In faith looked forward. To the one that God would send to fulfill that illustration of the Old Testament sacrifice. They looked forward to the cross. They looked forward to the cross through a fog, through a haze, right? God's revelation in Scripture is progressive, right? We have a much more clear picture now looking back at the cross. than what they did looking forward. But they were saved by grace through faith, looking forward to the cross, just as we are saved by grace through faith, looking backwards. So how was the Old Testament saint saved? If you're a believer, if you're a believer, the Old Testament saint was saved in the exact same manner that you were saved grace through faith, apart from the law, apart from works that no one might boast. David knew this. David proclaimed this. Psalm 32. How blessed. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. How blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven, or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away, as with the fever heat of summer. Verse five, and this is, this is key here. What does David say? He said, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David proclaims salvation through repentance and faith. He proclaims the methods of salvation in verse 5 of chapter Psalm 32. Not chapter 32, but Psalm 32. He says, repent. Turn from sin. And as I turn from sin, and in turning from sin, I've got to turn to something else. I turn to Christ in faith. And God saved me. And he saved David just as he saves us. Not on the basis of your repentance. Not on the basis of your faith. But he saves based on the work of Christ. So Ruth was saved according to God's sovereign plan for her life, which included drought and famine and loss and hunger and then plenty, as we'll see as we progress through Ruth. And he saved her not only according to his sovereign plan, but he saved her in the same manner that he saves us. And again, that's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Now the last part here we're going to look at. The last point is the sovereignty of God through calamity. Ruth 1, 19 through 22. So they both went, again, Ruth, Naomi, both went until they came to Bethlehem. And then when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, I in part can only imagine that they were stirred up. One, because Naomi is coming back to Bethlehem without a husband, without sons. And she's coming back to Bethlehem with a Moabitess, like, like one of our enemies? Really? It says, so she, Naomi, said to them, "Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me?" So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi rightly acknowledges the sovereignty of God in this section that he caused. He was in complete control, both of her well-being, her fullness, right, and her calamity. Isaiah 45.7, let's go back there. I think we we looked at that just uh, a little bit ago. Isaiah 45.7 says, Again, this was concerning Cyrus, but concerning us, says the one, God, forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So Naomi rightly proclaims, rightly acknowledges that God is sovereign, that the, 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 the loss we experienced in, in Judah originally, the fullness then that we experienced in Moab, then the loss that I experienced in Loab, Moab, right? It's all according to God's sovereign plan will for my life. However, Naomi, though she rightly acknowledges God's sovereignty, she wrongly accuses God of punishing her. Again, she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, means bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? You know, I know. Sometimes we've talked about, and I remember we were at the fair a couple years ago, and someone had an evangelistic booth there. Randy knew him, and the sign was something like, "Name four things that God cannot do." Right? We know there are things that God can't do. God can't lie, right? You know, you know what else God can't do? God can't punish his children. Did you know that? If you're a believer, if you're a believer, God can't, he can't punish you. God wasn't punishing Naomi. Believe at this point, I believe she was a believer, an Old Testament saint. God couldn't, couldn't punish her. If you're a believer, God can't punish you. The reason he can't punish you is because your sins have been punished. Naomi's sins were going to be punished. If you're a believer, your sins were punished in Christ on the cross. So as a believer, we don't have to fear the punishment of God our sins because our sins have been dealt with. Naomi says, God is punishing me. He's not. So that was probably sin on her part, right? To say that because it wasn't true, right? God wasn't punishing her sins. God won't punish your sins because Christ was punished for your sins, for my sins, in your place, in my place. Now, it's possible that God was disciplining her And there is a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is the purpose to inflict penalty for a past offense, and the focus of punishment is on the past misdeeds. Exactly why, why God won't punish us, can't punish us, right? Because those past offenses have been placed on Christ. Those past offenses have been dealt with at the cross and now when God looks at me and he looks at my sin or he looks at you, looks at your sin, he actually doesn't see it. I mean, he knows when we sin, okay? I mean, we say that, like when he looks at you, God doesn't see your sin, right? I mean, it doesn't mean God doesn't know when you don't, when you sin, right? Obviously, he does, right? But when he looks at you and he looks at your sin, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of his son who bore your sin in your... So those past misdeeds, these present misdeeds, the future misdeeds, right? Those have been dealt with. Those have been dealt with for the believer, for the believer only. Those have been dealt with at the cross. So God doesn't punish his children, but God does discipline. Now discipline, the purpose of discipline is to train for correction and maturity. And the focus is future maturity correct thinking correct doing sanctification that's the purpose of discipline so the purpose of discipline is for the sanctification of the one who's being disciplined so now with naomi is it possible that god was disciplining her it is now i I don't know right? Now, now Job, right, even in uh, chapter 1, 20-22, right, makes it clear that this calamity that was brought upon Job wasn't a result of discipline for some sins he had committed. And you think about Job, right, his friends, his wife, you know, oh, it's because of sin, you need to repent. And he's like, oh, I haven't done anything. No, you need to repent, curse God, and die, his wife says. And Job's like, but I haven't done anything. God's not disciplining me, okay? We know that clearly with Job. I, I don't know that for sure with Naomi, okay, regardless of whether or not it was for discipline for Naomi, Job, it wasn't discipline, but regardless of why this calamity had had come upon her, right, we know the outcome, the result, what God was doing in that and through that was to pee for her own sanctification. Let's look at a couple of verses here real quick, and then we'll be, we'll be through for this morning. First of all, concerning discipline, right? We know that God disciplines those he loves. And he disciplines his children. That's us. If You are his. Let's look at um, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's us if you are his child. It's you if you are his child. And he scourges, that doesn't mean like, like punishment, it just means forcefully correct. It says, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline, or it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. So when God disciplines us, he disciplines us for our good. It's for our sanctification, right? That we would, what? Be drawn closer and closer to Christ. That we would, our lives would conform more and more to Christ and less and less to this world? I can find my spot here. So that we might, what? Share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward, what? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God could have been disciplining Naomi. All right? He was disciplining her. He was disciplining her for her good, for her sanctification. We've got the story of Job, right? Naomi, maybe. I don't think he was disciplining her. I'll be honest. I've read several commentaries, and they're mixed. Some think that Naomi and Limelech going to Moab—it was sin, doing this, doing that. They were in sin. God was disciplining them with the deaths, with the droughts, with the famines. All this. I don't think so because I don't see it in the text. Okay. Is it possible God was disciplining her? I'll say it was possible. Regardless, her response was wrong, but it's possible. But now we've got the story of Job, where Job undergoes this immense pain and calamity and trials, right? And yet, Scripture makes it clear that Job wasn't being disciplined, right? Think back to James, right? Consider it pure joy, right? When we endure various trials let's turn there just real quick james chapter one just one book over from where we're at verse two consider it pure joy or all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance let endurance have its perfect result what's that your sanctification it says let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing right that you may be sanctified Right? So there are times in our lives that we go through these trials, right? And it's not a result of discipline. Now, let me say this. I think when we find ourselves there, at the place that Job's at, at the place that Naomi's at, I think we have to stop and we have to examine ourselves. Is God disciplining me? And ask him, Lord, if, if, I, have, if I have some unrepentant sin in my life that you are disciplining me over, Father, reveal that sin to me and grant me the repentance that I need to turn from that sin and to grab onto you ever so tightly. Okay? So, so one, when we find ourselves in trials, when we find ourselves in calamity, I think we, we have to, as believers, stop and examine ourselves. Is there, is there unrepentant sin in my life? Right. Am I a believer? Maybe I'm not being disciplined. Maybe I'm being punished. Maybe I need to repent and believe unto salvation. I am a believer. Is there some unrepentant sin that I need to repent over? Right. Drop it and grab even onto him more tightly. All right. Maybe either one of those is not the case. And yet, you're going through this trial. And we know in James that you're going through this trial for your sanctification, for your good. See, the, the thing is, um, I think all of us, at some point, at some place in our lives, we can relate to Ruth. We can relate to Naomi. We talked last time about sorrow in Moab, right? That every one of us at some point is going to experience sorrow in Moab. Every one of us is going to find where we're going to be at this place where God is is in his sovereign providence caring for us and providing for us abundantly. And in those times we need to cry out to him with a thankful heart and praise and worship for his provision. But we're also going to find ourselves in the place where God is providing for us through loss. And he's providing for us through need. And unlike Naomi, but like Job, <laughs> we need to cry out that God gives, that God takes away, right? cry out as Job did and yet blessed be the name of the Lord we need to thank him for his salvation if you are saved that he worked out perfectly in your life for his glory for your good he did it and at the end Naomi finds herself in this calamity and said that God is punishing her every one of us I know there are people now I know there have been families in this church who have gone through calamity, who have gone through loss, who have gone through sickness, who have gone through other forms of trials and tribulations, right? Calamity. They've gone through it according to God's perfect will. And as we find ourselves in those places, regardless of the circumstances, and regardless of why the circumstances are, are happening, discipline versus maybe not discipline, maybe God is just allowing it to happen for our sanctification, right? We know, we need to know, and we need to trust. that. Listen, God cares for us as he cared for Ruth, as he cared for Naomi. He intimately cares for us. He is our sovereign Lord who loves us what he does what he allows to happen he does or he allows to happen again as Romans 8:28 says what for our good doesn't mean it's easy i know that there are families now struggling right in the middle of trials okay and it's hard and yet we know that he's allowing it or he's causing it for their good for their sanctification, for our good, for your good, for your sanctification, as well as for his glory. And there's hope in that, folks. There is, there is peace in that. There is, there is comfort in knowing that as we are suffering, as we are enduring these trials, there is comfort in knowing that, that God is causing it, God is allowing it, because he truly cares for us. And he wants to continue making us, shaping us, molding us into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, um, well, you know, I don't have to tell you, um, but you know that, that I wrestled with this text as, as I considered um, just the trials, um, the calamity, the trouble. Um, or troubles that that Naomi faced and Ruth faced, and and knowing that um, that you were sovereign over them, and that that you're sovereign over our lives, my life, just as you are sovereign over over their lives. But but the conflict I think that I have, Lord, is um, is not wanting to go through sorrow in Moab. Is not wanting to experience trials, and not wanting to experience tribulation, not wanting to to be disciplined. I mean, I know if I need to be disciplined, Father, then then I want to be disciplined. But but I just want to avoid it altogether. I mean, I just want a, a a life of abundance and and everything just to be wonderful and 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 great. Um, and I I know that I struggle with that at times, Father. I I think that um, that's probably a common struggle among all of us, Lord, um, because I know that. The trials will come, and I know that you will provide. You will provide through loss. That you will provide through need. I know that there will times. There will be times when um, we're disciplined because we need to be disciplined. And I know, Lord, that there will be times when we, when we find ourselves like Job, with great loss and great pain, not as a result of discipline, um, but for your glory and and for our own sanctification, and. Um, Lord, my response to you, I think the the only right response to you would be um, let your will be done in me and in us so long as you, Lord God, are glorified. Make that the desire of my life, the desire of my heart, the desire of our lives, the desire of our hearts is to see you glorified above all else. As well, Lord, I, I do want to be sanctified. I desire that not, Father, just for my life, but um, for this church. Lord, I, I want us individually and corporately to be sanctified. And, and, and we, know, we know that you use at times bad things to do that. We know you use good things too. And so I pray for those as well. But I also know at times you use bad things. Um, painful things to sanctify us so lord i do ask that you would be glorified and that your perfect and holy will would be accomplished as you sanctify us again thank you father for your word and for speaking to us through your word jesus it is um it is for your sake um and and your name Lord, that I ask these things, that I pray these things this this morning. I ask that, um, Lord Jesus, above all else, your name would be magnified and it would go forward from here and that as a result you would continue to save all whom you will. Amen.
1: My light, my strength, my soul, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless base, gift of love and righteousness, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on For I am His and He is mine Bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in as first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can never pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand no power of hell, no scheme of man can never pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ stand.